I shall try to um, be a bit more disciplined in the timing of these readings and finish before 7.15. <laughs> There's uh, only a few more pages in this chapter. <coughs> but you never know how things will take shape. <coughs> so we continue with this uh, chapter 5, which is called To Be or Not To Be? Is That the Question? And... Uh, we come to um, the section uh, about uh, Kachanagota. Another of the highly significant expressions of this same balancing point of the middle way comes in the collection on causation in the Sangyutta Nikaya. So this is Sutra number 15, uh, and then the Nidanavaga, the, uh, the uh, section on causation, is, is section 12 of the um, Sangyutta. So this is one of the most uh, significant suttas in the uh, in the canon in uh, many respects, and uh, it's a very um, uh, much quoted and referred to both from the northern and the southern Buddhist schools. At Savati, then the venerable Kachana Gota approached the Blessed One, paid respects to him, sat down to one side, and said to him, "Venerable Sir, it is said." Right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? This world, Kachayana, for the most part, depends upon the dualism of the notions of existence and non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is, with right understanding, there is no notion of non-existence with regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is, with right understanding, there is no notion of existence with regard to the world. This world, Kachayana, is for the most part shackled by bias, clinging and insistence. But one such as this, with right view, instead of becoming engaged, instead of clinging, instead of taking a stand about myself, quote-unquote, through such bias, clinging, mental standpoint, adherence, and underlying tendency, such a one has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising, and what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. In this their knowledge is independent of others. It is in this way, Kachayana, that there is right view. All exists, Kachayana, is one extreme. All does not exist. This is the other extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle way. With ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. And then so on through the whole uh, arising sequence of the uh, Paticca Samuppada, dependent origination. Then he says, such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away, cessation and non-arising of ignorance, there comes the cessation of volitional formations. With the cessation of volitional formations, when there are no volitional formations, there is the cessation of consciousness. Consciousness does not come to be. And so on and so forth through the whole um, uh, say, uh, cessation cycle, or cessation sequence of the dependent origination, all the way up to saying, such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. It has been proposed by uh, Dr. Kalupahana in his book Nagarjuna, The Philosophy of the Middle Way, that this humble sutta was the principal seed for the great early Indian Buddhist philosopher Acharya Nagarjuna's masterpiece, the Mula Majamika Karika, the treatise on the route of the middle way. It is certainly the only discourse of the ancient canon that is mentioned by name therein. In point of fact, it is the only, it is the only discourse mentioned at all. When I uh, came to Amravati and took over um, occupation of Lomposameto's Kuti, and this uh, a, a passage from this sutta was pinned up on the notice board in his kitchen. So things to remember today. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> it was this this uh, paragraph. This world Kachayana is for the is for the most part shackled. It's like limited or bound by bias, clinging, and insistence. 
So this is a um, uh, uh, one of those the suttas uh, passages that it takes a bit of reading and going through. You know what what exactly is it saying? And uh, there's this. Uh, um, so it, what we have here is this expression about any kind of notions or beliefs about existence that everything exists. That affirmative or eternalist view is one extreme. One or the nihilist, nothing exists. Um, uh, uh, that uh, is the the other extreme. But uh, as the, he points out in the introduction to this, um, if you reflect on on the arising of experience, then saying nothing exists doesn't really apply. But if you reflect on the cessation of things, then everything exists doesn't really apply. So if you're attaching to either of those, then the the uh, the nature of experience uh, uh, belies that. Uh, that that sort of philosophical position, and so that what he is then talking about is how the um, <clears throat> when things arise, what arises is dukkha. So that uh, and uh, as I was talking about in in the readings yesterday and day before, this um, it's when the mind departs from dhamma, as it were, departs from its root and gets born into a thought, a feeling, uh, a sense perception that um, <clears throat> uh, any kind of forming or the mind believing or this this is a distinct thing this is a distinct object or a distinct subject as soon as it makes that that distinction that definition and takes it to be solid real absolute uh, in that very uh, making of that thingness the mind forming that that thing and sort of losing its uh, its appreciation of of dhamma the fundamental reality then in that very thingness there is dukkha. So that like you have a simple phrase like sabe sankara dukkha, all conditioned things are unsatisfactory. If it's formed, the experience of a formed thing is necessarily uh, unsatisfactory. When the mind recognizes it's not a th- you know, that, that thing is not a thing, or that <laughs> this being is not not really a being. It just looks this way. It just seems this way. It's only a seeming. It's only an appearing. Then there's the the possibility of, uh, as he says, of, of this kind of this quality of right view to be established. There is, uh, there is <coughs> in the seen. There's only the seen. In the heard, there's only the heard. There is that sense of knowing. Or oh, this is the sense experience. There's no thing there. There's no there's no f- fundamental sub, uh, separate uh, individual object there, and there's no separate individual uh, absolute. Uh, uh, subject here and a knower that is is here. So as in that the discourse to Bahia, there's no thing there, there's no thing here, and it's not saying that there isn't anything happening. It's not saying there is no reality. Because people would then uh, uh, assume or take this to be the the Buddha saying there is a, it was a, a nihilistic philosophy, and so uh, the. Um, uh, when Buddhism started to become popular in the in the West around the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, it was getting a, a, a lot of um, uh, sort of uh, say acknowledgement or praise and uh, interest within the, the media in the in the um, in Western Europe, particularly because of German scholars and British scholars translating texts and also particularly the light of asia translated by sir edwin arnold that had a huge impact um on the on the english-speaking world uh, sir edwin arnold he was the editor of the daily telegraph which is a very prominent uh, british newspaper so he wasn't just sort of some random random bloke kind of shouting on the street corner he was a very uh a respectable sort of pillar of society uh, he was a knight of of the realm and uh, and a, uh, a literary person, and so for him to uh, to write this this book, which is very much in praise of uh, the, uh, the the Buddha and his teachings, it had a, a big impact, and I think it was published in 1872, around there, 18, in the 1870s. So that had a, a big impact, and it was had such a big impact that they he was uh, persuaded <laughs> to write a a a, a, a um, sort of comparable. Uh, a sort of epic poem about Jesus called "The Light of uh, the Light of Europe," uh, which didn't sell as many copies as "The Light of Asia." 
so anyway, that the um, there was a, a lot of uh, say interpretation of the Buddha's teaching and putting uh, criticism of it as a nihilistic doctrine, and that was like I was saying yesterday about Karl Gellerup's novel, uh, um, The Pilgrim Karmanita. I was so impressed with how he he sort of, uh, picks up the Buddha's teaching and then represent it represents it very clearly as it's not a nihilistic teaching. You you know you can you can take it that way. But it's uh, in essence, it's uh, it's not nihilistic at all. But uh, you uh, you can't look at it in the same way that you would uh, you know look at your um, uh, your your uh, say the average religious philosophy based on a theistic model. So the uh, this particular teaching here, this is one of the the clearest places where the Buddha talks about. Not attaching to existence or non-existence, to being or non-being, um, and as he points it out very, very clearly, all exists, quote unquote, kachayana. This is one extreme. All does not exist, quote unquote. This is the other extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle way. So that um, that in a way, it's saying yes, there is this experience. Yes, the the mind and, and the the knowing of of a uh, uh, of experience. That's the the only reliable um, quality, but that uh, experience is dependent. It's it's contingent. It's uh, it's uh, it's affected by the means by, by which it is seen, by which it is experienced. It's, it's known through your mind, and so that the um, uh, um, the um, The way he summarizes the middle way is then through the spelling out of dependent origination. So, and so that is, in a sense, uh, uh, as he says, without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle way. And so he points to how <coughs> when the mind is uh, is not seeing clearly, when there's avijja, when there's not, uh, when there's ignorance, then the disharmony arises. Uh, when there is no ignorance, then disharmony does not arise. So he avoids the whole question of existence, doesn't uh, existence or non-existence. Um, he say that in a way that um, that trying to frame things and do things exist or do they not exist? It, again, it's one of those instances of saying you're asking the wrong question. <laughs> it's not an issue of existence or, not, or non-existence. That that's not it. It's uh, what he's pointing to. He said that. Look at it this way. When there's ignorance, then this experience of disharmony, dukkha, arises. When there's no ignorance, then the disharmony does not arise. That's all you need to know. You don't, it doesn't need to be framed in terms of, of a being, either existing or, 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 not, or not existing. Because it's rather like the, the, going back to that image of the, the fire. Where did the fire, when the fire went out, where did the fire go? North, south, east, or west? Then in the same way, if you're asking a question, well, does a... Do I exist or don't I exist? <laughs> well, you're asking a question that that uh, that pr- presumes a reality that that uh, is not um, is not substantial. Is not is not it's not based on how things actually are. So he sort of in a way steps back from that question of do things uh, do things really exist or do they not really exist? Yeah, that uh, he's saying well that that the question doesn't really pertain. It's not. That's not a, a, a meaningful question, and rather, what's meaningful is why do I? Why is suffering experienced? Or why? Uh, why is there this experience of discontent or, or incompleteness or insecurity? And and that's the the principal thing. And then the and then the the thesis that then Nagarjuna spells out in his uh, the treatise on the root of the middle way, he. Uh, uh, and, and it sort of permeates through a lot of Tibetan Buddhism uh, accordingly, is that the uh, uh, emptiness or the empty nature of things is uh, directly related to the, the teachings on dependent origination, that things are dependently arisen. And so that you, uh, uh, rather than taking a, a position about existing and not existing, you can say, well, experience is dependently arisen. And... And, and again, what arises is only arising suffering. What ceases is only suffering ceasing. And, and again, that can sound like a bit of a negative view, but if you if you take it back to the uh, experience of meditation, when the 
uh, when uh, the, the mind is fully awake and aware, uh, as awake as aware as it can be, then noticing how when the, the mind creates a, a thing, creates a thought, or creates a memory or a feeling, that as, as soon as that is created and there's a, 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 an I who's experiencing it, that subject-object duality forms, and then that uh, there's a the the in a sense the seed of dukkha is is sort of sprouted right there, and that the more that the mind can just stay aware uh, of its own nature, the heart aware of its own na- its own nature, and essentially the dhamma the dhamma being aware of itself, then there is no dukkha being created. That there's a that uh, the dhamma has this sort of formless, timeless, non-personal quality and it's the very fabric of, of our nature and the nature of, of everything <clears throat> and then as soon as that sort of <laughs> that nature stops being recognized uh, and uh, the, the mind gets born into a feeling or a thought or a perception and then then that avicca pachaya sankara ignorance conditions formations and then formations condition consciousness and consciousness conditions uh, uh, mind and body nama rupa so that the the model that uh, <coughs> that comes to mind is that you know when the when the when there is vicha there is this uh, the, simply the dhamma is aware of its own nature the dhamma that is that is your mind the, the fabric of of your your uh, mind that is capable of of knowing uh, that that quality of vicha or awareness is the fundamental attribute of of uh, of dhamma then uh, there is a quality of peacefulness, clarity, freedom, wholeness. But as soon as that there's avijja, that ignorance arises, then <coughs> that uh, uh, causes that um, awareness, that attention to, to lock onto the, the uh, a perception or uh, a form or in the mental or, or the perceptual world, and then things arise, sankhara. Uh, get formed. There's a and then the um, as I said the consciousness and name and form uh, vinyana namarupa. Then they they develop as a sort of consciousness as the knower and namarupa as the the known. And then they they form uh, in a in a kind of in, with increasing momentum into this sense of a me here and a world out there, or me here watching my mind in here. And that becomes like no, I'm talking to you here, here in the sala. It's uh, it's a Wednesday evening. That's where we are. This is real. <laughs> this is the, the, that becomes a, a solid, permanent reality. But if if the mind is not born into that, if it doesn't uh, say uh, create thingness and and uh, say make it more substantial, give it substantiality when it doesn't really possess that, then there's seeing, hearing, thinking. Um, Speaking, <laughs> and it's known that these are this is a, a flow of, uh, of patterns of consciousness that are not is not a person is not is not a is not a, a thing it's not a, a a collection of selves and others but is rather a a, a, a pattern of, uh, a, a, of organic changes taking place according to the the laws of nature. And uh, the no dukkha arises on account of that. So before going on to trying to read out um, Nagarjuna in Stephen Batchelor's translation, uh, I'll pause there for a moment if there's any questions, thoughts, reflections. I have a question, but I don't quite know how to formulate it. It's puzzling me all day, though. Um, because we've been talking a lot about the not self. There's a there's a, a strand of thinking in, in science, particularly where um, there's no such thing as mind states. There's no such thing as mind there's states. Brain states. So in, 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 in essence, there is only what's um, which is kind of what you describe. And mm-hmm. um, I and they kind of co-opted this idea of no self. A lot, you know, when, I, when I read around the subject, not I know much about it. And I think you've been to conferences where yes. probably those things have been mentioned. Yes. So, um, so this, I get very confused sometimes when I hear 
the sorts of things you've just mentioned. Because um, does that, what are you describing in a way? You know, because if, I, if I'm describing my own experience, individual experience, mm-hmm. um, and that grasping onto particulars of that experience will cause suffering, okay. <laughs> Fair enough, yes. Um, you know, that's something that can be understood, worked on, whatever. Um, if it's then, but then if it's saying there is nothing, it's a very different thing. And, and I, I get very, you know, time and time again, I get really stuck on this somehow because it, it's not that I'm trying to imagine it, mm-hmm. but the, the, the effect is one of profound misery. <laughs> you know, That's it, not right. <laughs> it, it's, uh, but, but there really is there's something there which, which just doesn't. Well, it's uh, it's good to ask the question, and um, because it, in a way it's true, Dharma is is no thing. It's not a thing. The Dharma is not a thing, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> like it's the, the Dharma is the is the fundamental reality, but it's not a a, a, a thing. It's not in. Uh, it's like a. It's not a. Um, a quality that arises in the world of other qualities. So it's, uh, uh, and this is one of the reasons why the, the Buddha said no one's ever going to understand it, <laughs> because it's a um, that that uh, that fundamental. And I mean, the, the, in terms of, of like, speaking of science, in terms of physics, subatomic physics, they talk about the sea of potential. That you know, all particles arise out of this sea of potential, you know, quarks and and uh, such like, right at the, the most sort of at, at the currently currently the most microscopic level of of matter. That that particles form out of this sea of potential, which is timeless, unlocated, infinite, and you know, sanditiko, akaliko, not necessarily ahipasiko, but. You know, that sort of, uh, it's a uh, they they speak about this this ultimate field that all particles uh, form out of, um, but you can't. They say, well, what is that field made of? And they say, well, you can't ask that really. It's like it's like it's made of doesn't really apply, but it's what all the the um, the, the, the in a sense is, is the source of the qualities that form into. Electrons, quarks, protons, neutrons, etc., etc., etc. So that <clears throat> they and they can describe it. They they even they can sort of draw. They can write up equations for how it this field behaves. They talk about these wonderful terms like quantum foam, like a sort of frothy sea, like the the waves of the of this this um, field of potential, just sort of forming into like like the frothy waves at the on the seashore. Quantum foam, and uh, but you know the, the, they struggle to to come up with with uh, physical imagery that represents those qualities, and so um, I I feel that the, on the mental level that yeah you know, it operates very much in that same kind of way that our um, the the fundamental say, quote unquote fabric of of what what is real what what we are. Um, is uh, is a kind of it can be realized, but it can't be described. As because it is outside of time, and uh, <clears throat> so that the the when the mind uh, awakens to that that fundamental nature, when the the the, the mind knows its own nature, then uh, it, there's this um, quality of no thingness. <laughs> it's not a. It's not a thing, but there's a a, a, a like a an infinite quality of of presence and also um, sort of freedom and joyfulness rather than misery. If you think if you think that what you are is a thing, then to realize that that is not a thing is a is there's a sense of loss. Um, 
Does that make sense what I was saying there? Yes. Um, <laughs> you can say no. No, no. I might be losing a few people here. Um, <laughs> well, so-called sorry, people. It doesn't, it doesn't need to no, it's, it's, it's a good question. Yes. So you wouldn't describe a bridge in terms of quantum physics. You right. You describe it in terms of engineering. And Correct. That works. Yes. You can't describe it another way. The bridge does not work. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> the Planck length with that without a C. The length it applies, but length below a certain measurement of Max Planck's Planck length it doesn't apply. <laughs> Well, yeah, the, 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 the mind is an artifact of brain chemistry. For example, so there's no point in having any ethics or anything like that, because it's irrelevant almost. It's a more different thing. So it's more, you know, it's like, where does that, how, how does that more self-verify in that way? Well, I think it, uh, what, the way I, I, I approach it and appreciate it is that when you rather than you approaching it through theory you approach it through practice and so the experience that when the 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 mind is not creating itself not creating a, a, an identity not creating the world then um if there's a, a an exploring and an investigating of well what's this like you know what's the disposition of the heart when it's awake to its own nature and then the experience is that of peacefulness, uh, cheerfulness, ease. There's no thing that is needed, no thing to be got got rid of. There's no thing that is that shouldn't be. Um, and any inclination towards selfishness or violence or getting anything or judging anyone or thinking that you, that there's a being here who's somehow special, this just doesn't apply. <laughs> So that, and that's why I, 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 that Upasita uh, um, uh, Sutta, the, uh, where the Buddha talks about his his formulation of the eight precepts, says you know all their lives uh, the Ar uh, the arahants uh, never uh, from the time of their enlightenment they never deliberately take the life of another living being, um, and wouldn't it be a useful thing for lay people to follow that uh, uh, that principle, and then that, they will be living as the arahants do, and that will be their long-lasting welfare and happiness. So an arahant doesn't have to say, "I don't want to. I shouldn't. Oh, I want to kill something, but I, I, but I shouldn't." But there's no, there's no thing in the mind that can move towards harming another creature in a in a knowing way. It can't move towards sense desire or sense gratification just for the sake of. And so that, um, rather than than. Uh, a, uh, a sort of a theoretical approach. When you approach it like that, then okay. When the mind is in, when it's in your, in, in, keep to keep it simple. In your best moments, then uh, in the the mind's best moments, then if there's an exploring, okay, what's what? Okay, the mind is is really completely clear and awake, and um, uh, there's no sense of self. So, what's the inclination of the mind? Is there anything that has to be got rid of? No. Is there anything to be acquired? No. Is there anything? Uh, is there anything wrong with anything? Uh, any aspect of experience? No. <laughs> uh, and so that then, and, and what? And what's the, the the tone of this experience? Well, it's one of simplicity, 
uh, ease, spaciousness, uncomplicatedness. Okay, <laughs> well, whatever you call it, it's this. So that then it's uh, the, the, uh, the, the, in a sense, the felt, uh, the felt sense of that um, and the internal experience of it rather than, than a, um, a kind of technical description of it. And that's what I, I tend to trust, even if the, the words are sort of stretching to, to try and describe that, that experience of the unborn, the unconditioned, the uncreated and so on. It's interesting when the, when I f- uh, went back to I, I did a degree in, in psychology and physiology and my first time I went back to visit my old uh, university psychology department. The the one of the the most sort of hard nosed and um, and I thought obviously erroneously <laughs> I thought she was one of the most sort of um, uh, uh, kind of rationalist and um, mechanistic thinking lecturers in, in the department. Uh, so I, I, I'd let them know I was going to come and visit and see the see the professor. I just happened to be uh, uh, had a, a few hours free in London. I thought, oh, I'll go and visit the college. It's in Regent's Park, so it was easy to get to. So I um, I showed up in the uh, in the the department offices. And said hello to the uh, the departmental secretary, and then this this uh, one of my lecturers, Dr. Valentine, she says, "Oh, it's you! Is there an ultimate reality? What is it?" <laughs> Wait. Oh, <sighs> hello, Dr. Valentine. Um, yes, well, nice to see you too. You know, <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah, and she's one of the the very few that actually kept up a correspondence with me, and I and I had sort of pigeonholed her as this really kind of sort of brain-dead, uninteresting, very uh, uh, very sort of mechanistic, uh, left-brain kind of a person. But she she was right on me. Kind of hardly even, I couldn't even hardly even sit down to her. <laughs> and uh, so she was really, she was really uh, fascinated by this same kind of, this the same kind of area whereby the those who feel that the mind is just a, a uh, sort of side effect of brain chemistry, and that there there's no thing uh, beyond that, uh, or there's uh, and then the other end of the scale, which is that the um, mind sort of mind functions prior to brain chemistry, <laughs> and that the uh, the brain is more of a, a a means through which mind functions, but it's not the the basis of reality. So anyway, it was a, it, a long time ago now, that was back in the 80s, but uh, I was impressed by how keen she was on the subject. She's still teaching, uh, Elizabeth Valentine, she's still around. Any other questions on the venerable um, Indipanya? Yeah. Um, that experience you're describing of uh, the state of the mind from the position of ultimate reality or the mind of peace, um, is that similar, would you say, to the pre-Buddhist term of Satchitananda? And I'm just been wondering about that term and if it relates to the, the, when the Buddha uses the word chitta. And I'm also just wondering about how the chitta fits in with that, with that experience. Well, I'd say that um, it, it, I'm not sure of the origin of that term, where it, come, where it got hatched in terms of the timeline. But uh, certainly it, it describes that same kind of territory uh, sat, truth, chit, mind, ananda, bliss or, you know, often translated as being, consciousness, bliss and then um, then on that, the basis of that experience then people formed the theories of, of the Atman and its connection or disconnection with Brahman or spiritual practices getting the Atman to reconnect with Brahman and so on and so forth but um, I feel that it's a it's a primordial experience, and I don't. Uh, it's also the, the Buddha says it's not. You know, Dhamma is not confined. Whether whether a Tathagata appears in the world or not, the Dhamma still is there. You know, that's like water is still in the ground, whether you dig for it or not. <laughs> and that whenever a being has fully let go of 
greed, hatred, and delusion, then that's going to be the nature of, of, of the mind's experience of, of the present. Is when it's free of those obscurations, then it's going to it's going to know that uh, that quality. It's going to be it's going to be apparent. And uh, as Lumpur Sumedha would famously say, well, you, you can call it you can call it what you like. You don't have to use Buddhist terminology to to talk about that ultimate reality. So you can call it Montague if you want to. <laughs> Which is a, a bit confusing to some people in the, one of those Sunday talks. It's, you can call it whatever you like. You can call it Montague if you like. Montague. <laughs> it took me years. I have actually I've never followed it up. But uh, in Romeo and Juliet, another of Shakespeare's plays, the two um, main characters, Romeo and Juliet, belong to these two houses, Montague and Capulet, and so that. Uh, they and these two families are fighting each other. They're, they're kind of a long-standing f- feud between them. And Romeo belongs to one house, and Juliet belongs to the other house. And then they fall in love with each other. And so then I think it's Juliet um, is uh, is uh, sort of uh, bemoaning the fact that it's, it's so unfair that that they can't they can't live together and, and uh, be a couple because of just because of their names. And she says. Um, a rose by any other name. What's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And so that, uh, and so my another of my pet. I've got a lot of pet theories. So <laughs> a small pet theory. I got you know, we don't have any pets in this monastery. But I have pet theories. So uh, is that uh, Lumpur Sumedha something either consciously or unconsciously was thinking of Romeo and Juliet, when he said, "You can call it Montague if you like." If he said Capulet, it would have been really easy to, to... It would have been a sure thing. But it might have just been... If he had a school teacher called Montague. It was just like a random name that sprang to mind. Okay, so I'll carry on. <clears throat> I will try to finish my 7 o'clock. <laughs> my way of expansion on this area... Here are some of Acharya Nagarjuna's own incisive thoughts, own incisive insights on being, non-being, and causality. And you will find this hard to follow. If you don't, I'll be very impressed. It's called The Investigation of Essences. It is unreasonable for an essence to arise from causes and conditions. Whatever essence arose from causes and conditions would be something that has been made. How is it possible for there to be an essence, quote-unquote, which has been made? Essences are not contrived and not dependent on anything else. If an essence does exist, how can the thingness of the other exist? For the essence of the thingness of the other is said to be the thingness of the other. (laughs) (laughs) So I predicted you wouldn't find it hard to follow this. I uh, took a great care in, in copying this out from his manuscript. So there, there, uh, believe it or not, there are no misprints here. This is, this, is how it's, this is how it's written. Apart from an essence and the thingness of the other, what things are there? If essences and thingnesses of others existed, things would be established. If things were not established, non-things would be established. When a thing becomes something else, people say it is a non-thing. Those who view essence, thingness of the other, things and non-things, do not see the suchness in the teaching of the awakened. Through knowing things and non-things, the Buddha negated both existence and non-existence in his advice to Kachayana. If things existed essentially, they would not come to non-existence. It's never the case that an essence could become something else. If essences did not exist, what could become something else? Even if essences existed, what could become something else? Existence is the grasping at permanence. Non-existence is the view of annihilation. Therefore, the wise do not dwell in existence or non-existence. Since that which exists by its essence is non-existent, so since, quote, that which exists by its essence is non-existent is the view of permanence, 
That which arose before is now non-existent, leads to the view of annihilation. So I read that, and I considered very, very carefully whether to put this in or not, because I felt that uh, um, it would be very tricky for the average reader, whether English is your first language or not, to, to, to follow it. But if you, uh, if you do track it through and, and follow the terminology, it, 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 does, uh, it does make sense. The idea of a, an essence is like a, the the kind of um, the the fundamental nature of a thing, like the essence of a book or a person. If that if that's the, that essential quality existed, what could become something else? That if it was an essence, that implies it's something that's permanent. So this book couldn't become a fire starter because it's, it's still a book, even if you put it in the fire and and uh, ignite it, and it turns into ashes. Well, the book is still there. <laughs> So that the, uh, or of a, a, um, uh, a when if things didn't exist, how could we? Uh, if there was, if non-existence was real, then how could we ever talk about anything? How could we be here? So it's a um, a, um, a a way of uh, what he's trying to do here is think through all those uh, aspects of. If things really existed, if, thing, if there were things that didn't exist, if non-existence was true, and he's trying to uh, follow the logic uh, uh, and to show much more clearly that, uh, the, uh, as he says, if things existed essentially, they would not, uh, uh, then they could never stop existing. There would be no impermanence. If uh, and. Um, uh, and if uh, things didn't exist, what would uh, if there was if non-existence was real, then how could there be anything anybody here to to, to or anything here uh, to be discussed? So um, uh, he's trying to clarify the Buddha's teaching, but uh, on review, I feel that the Buddha puts it much more simply <laughs> and more effectively. In this, the saying that uh, all does not, all exists is one extreme, all does not exist is the other extreme, without veering to either of these, the, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle way. Um, and then when he talks about um, the, the quality of emptiness, Sunyatama, there's a later chapter that talks a lot about that. Um, the uh, the most common way of speaking about emptiness is empty of self and what belongs to a self. That's how the, the Buddha most often defines it. Sometimes it means an object that has no essential substance. Uh, but more often it's talking about the empty nature of the subject rather than the object. Does that make sense? So, and so there's this phrase, empty of self and what belongs to a self. That's the most common way that the Buddha um, uh, uses the term emptiness. So this uh, teaching of, of Nagarjuna, um, there is a very, very influential uh, text, uh, this Root of the Middle Way, and, and informs a lot of the, the Mahayana, um, you know, the Northern Buddhist teachings. But uh, it's, it's interesting that, uh, as quite a few scholars have pointed out, Kalupahana was one of them, and, and others too, say, well, uh, if, you, if you read it through, and, and, you've tried, and you manage to follow it, then it's a... Uh, it doesn't come across as particularly Mahayanist at all. There's not sort of any talk of bodhisattvas or, or such like. And it, uh, even though it heavily influenced the Northern Buddhist school, it's more uh, like a, a fine analysis and a sort of a, uh, a, sort of a, a logician mapping out the implications of the, of the Buddhist teaching, and particularly this teaching from the, um, uh, uh, the Nidhanavaga, this, uh, the teaching to, to uh, Kachana Gota. So to continue, as with many in, of the instances where the Buddha invokes dependent origination as the resolution for dualities such as self and other, eternalism and annihilationism, etc., yeah, a large proportion of these are found in the Nidana Sunyuta, the collection on causation, Nagarjuna employs the same method throughout his treatise. He illustrates again and again how the dependently originated quality of all things is the basis for their emptiness, sunyata. 
and you know, empty yourself and what belongs to yourself. And by the way, Stephen Batchelor did do a much more uh, readable version of this. This was his his sort of technical translation. Um, and I used this one because I couldn't get permission from the publishers to use the readable one. So the, the readable one, or the more easily comprehensible one, is called uh, Voices from the Center, I think. Yeah, I think it's called Voices from the Center. And uh, yeah, the publishers wouldn't give me give us permission to quote from it. So, um, and Stephen said, "Sorry, it's not up to me. The, the copyright belongs to the publisher. If they say no, I can't say yes." So I said, "Well, <laughs> can I use your original manuscript?" And he said, "Oh yeah, you can use that." So I, uh, I I had to use this to quote from rather than his more readable one. But I do believe we have a copy of that in the in the. Um, uh, library and it's a uh, a translation of that uh, Nagarjuna, the root of the middle way. But it's it's in a poetic form, but it's uh, in a far more readable. So uh, I would uh, recommend if you are interested in understanding a bit more clearly, if you track that down, because um, it is also Stephen does a bit more um, rendering rather than a sort. Of, this is like a strict translation, and the the original text is 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 not very. Um, Explanatory. So, so uh, in his trans in his rendering in that voices from the center, that he he makes it a bit more um, sort of tangible and and readable. And, and I, I I respect his understanding. So I feel he has not he's not misrepresenting the text, but um, uh, he has uh, sort of filled it out in a few places just to make it a bit more comprehensible and um, accessible. So his exposition, so Nagarjuna, is a poetic exploration of the relationship between emptiness, dependent origination, and the middle way. It is a work of great philosophical depth, yet its language throughout is extremely spare, diamond-like in its purity and sharpness. It's also a work that stands close to the central teachings of the Buddha and is thus capable of usefully informing practitioners of both northern and southern schools. Returning to the Pali, once again, here are the Buddha's words to a former teacher of his, in a previous life, the Brahma god Bhakka, whom he was endeavouring to help break through the conceit of eternal being. So again, this is the um, Majjhima Nikaya Sutta number 49. This is called the Invitation to a Brahma. So this is, uh, uh, we've referred to a few times uh, recently, where the, the Buddha picks up that this, uh, this Brahma god, who used to be a teacher of his in a previous life, has got this conceited view that he thinks he's the creator of the universe and is um, the, uh, and is believing that he's the all-powerful. So the, the Buddha goes to visit him and uh, or, uh, to help correct that view out of kindness to his former teacher. And so anyway, during that dialogue, uh, the Buddha says to, to Bhaka, having seen fear in every mode of being and in, uh, and in seeking for non-being, I did not affirm any mode of being, nor did I cling to any delight therein. Having seen fear in every mode of being and in seeking for non-being, I did not affirm any mode of being, nor did I cling to any delight therein. So in speaking to, to Baka, um, and, and also, uh, uh, if you might remember, that in the story what happens is that the, uh, the Buddha goes to, to see Baka and Baka, um, Sort of appears before the Buddha, and the Buddha said, "Well, you, you know, you think you're the Almighty and the Creator, and it, but if you were, uh, you would be able to vanish from me and, and to disappear from from my my range of vision. But but you can't do that. So Bhakka attempts it, but he can't he can't uh, disappear from the Buddha's field of, of vision and knowledge. And the Buddha said, "Well, I can uh, I can disappear from yours, and then he vanishes, and Bhakka can't find him." And he says, "Actually." Um, you know, I was talking about the Brahma, the Brahma realms yesterday or the day before, and so the the realm that Baka Brahma is in is actually only the third of the Brahma heavens, and there's and the Buddha says, um, Baka, you're not only are you not the creator and the Almighty and the the um, the sort of the boss of the universe, there's actually eighteen Brahma realms higher than this <laughs> that you don't even know about, eighteen whole heavens higher than where he's. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, and as I mentioned, Baka is uh, in in Pali means a heron. Uh, 
So in Indian mythology and, and folklore, the heron is a sort of proud, haughty, <laughs> looks down its long nose at, uh, at others. And so that this is after the, the Baka has tried to vanish from the Buddha and, and couldn't, and the Buddha vanished from Baka. And he's amazed because the Buddha's voice says, uh, from, from the, the void, the Buddha says, you see, Baka, you, know, you, can't, you don't know where I am. You, know, you don't know what realm I'm in. You can't find me, can you? So there's a, <coughs> he, he cannot um, uh, sort of get around that. And then in his explanation, then Buddha makes this comment, about um, how, in uh, in the enlightened from the enlightened um, perspective, uh, and his own experience, having seen fear in every mode of being, and in seeking for non-being, I did not affirm any mode of being. So that that uh, ha- a way that the enlightened mind is not uh, grasping any particular uh, uh, form of identity in any any mode of being, whether it's um, mundane or, or uh, and so in the human realm or in the divine um, refined realms, even in the formless Brahma realms. In a comparable passage, Mara comes to visit the nun Vajira and tries to throw her off her path of spiritual practice by introducing doubts into her mind. So this uh, this passage comes from the fifth section of the Sanyutta Nikaya, the Bhikkhuni Vaga, and it's a, it's a short um, section, there's only about ten suttas in it, and in all of them, Mara's coming along to give the nuns a bad time. And he doesn't succeed. So, uh, and some of them, which is good news, uh, some of them are, are, have uh, uh, similar verses in the Teri Gita, the verses of the enlightened nuns, some of them don't. So uh, Vajira is one that she doesn't appear in the Teri Gita. She, uh, in the verses of the enlightened nuns, um, but uh, anyway, this is the this is the dialogue between them. So Mara comes along. She's she's practicing meditation out in the forest in the blind men's grove, and uh, this voice appears. She's and it says, "By whom has this being created? Where is the maker of this being? From whence has this being arisen? Where will this being cease?" Then the Bhikkhuni Vajira, having understood. This is Mara, the evil one, replies to him in verses. Why do you presume a being, quote-unquote, is here? Mara, is that your real view? This is just a heap of forms. No being can be apprehended. Just as with all parts assembled, the name of chariot can be used. So a chariot is a kind of uh, uh, little vehicle with, with two wheels pulled along by horses in the... Uh, uh, in, uh, in warfare, usually, by uh, soldiers. <clears throat> Just as with all the parts assembled, the name of chariot can be used. So, while the Kundas keep on going, the convention of a being, quote-unquote, pertains. What comes to be is only dukkha. Only dukkha remains and falls away. Nothing but dukkha comes to be, nothing but dukkha fades away. So this mirrors that the the um, that uh, comment that you have in the Kachanagota Sutta. Um, what arises is only dukkha arising, and what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. Um, and uh, again, it can seem like a pretty um, uh, negative way to think about human life and say, "This is this all it is is just dukkha. This this me, all I am is dukkha. You know, my life, my mind, my feelings." Yeah, it's come, there's got to be something more than unsatisfactoriness here. <laughs> but it's uh, it's not talking about um, dukkha as uh, as, a, as the ultimate reality. Far from it. It's like that when thing when the, when the thingness appears, when there's a being that when you, when the mind conceives, I am a person. I am a man. I am a woman. I am old. I'm young. I'm tall. I'm short. I'm fat. I'm thin. I'm healthy. I'm sick. Uh, all those I am's in that. I aming, <laughs> then there is uh, intrinsic in that thingness is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. There's a, there's a um, uh, in that the mind not seeing clearly, and then what fades away when when a thing ceases or when its its substantiality is is challenged, when its uh, its empty nature is recognised, 
then dukkha ceases. Well, uh, dukkha fades away. What fades away is dukkha. As a final word for this chapter, here is the complete spiritual biography that Ajahn Chah wrote for the ecclesiastical authorities when pressed repeatedly by them to provide one so that the king of Thailand could award him an honorary title. Uh, this uh, happened for me, myself, and Ajahn Pasno uh, last year, so that uh, actually Suvira in, in the office here was the one who did most of the compiling. So I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't have the same spiritual clout as Lumpur Cha by even the one-tenth of a percent, so I didn't, I didn't try this. But so Suvira gave him a whole file of my biographies and a certificate for passing a degree and... Uh, um, list of books I've written and such like. But uh, <clears throat> so in order to, to give Lumpur Cha this title, they're supposed to submit this biography of like where you were, uh, where you were ordained and who you practiced with and uh, what you know, your qualifications are. And uh, Lumpur Cha kept not replying and not replying and not replying. And so they're expecting, as like I said, this whole sort of catalogue of your achievements. Um, and so Lumpur Cha, and but they really wanted to give him this title, and it's like well, you've got to give us this biography, look, <laughs> please, you know, you, we, you know, we want to, we want to make you a Chao Kun, and it's like this is a big honor, and His Majesty is asking, like, you know, you, you kind of, you got to, you you got to please deliver. So eventually, he he did reply. He filled in the box, but what he said was, sometimes there's thunder and there's no rain. Sometimes there's rain and there's no thunder. <laughs> that was his biography. <laughs> okay, you want the whole life story? Here it is. <laughs> so, as I said, I, I would... Uh, uh, I did not possess one one tenth of a percent of the spiritual clout of Lumpur Cha, so I wouldn't try and get away with that myself. So, Severa produced all these certificates and, and book lists and photographs and and so forth. But anyway, I so I, I was looking into this, and uh, when I um, I was asked to do a, an introduction for um, the collected teachings of Lumpur Cha. Um, and uh, I was thinking, I, was, I wanted to call the, uh, my suggestion for the, for the biography was Thunder in an Open Sky. Because they're like picking up on this. As a, but, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, that, uh, they got published as Collective Teachings of Ajahn Chah instead. Much less poetic. But, uh, you know, we have to live with these things. Sometimes the, uh, one's bright ideas don't get followed through. But anyway, uh, so I uh, um, I decided to to find out because I was curious about where this came from. Was it just something he invented? And and uh, so that I asked about uh, this this uh, expression in the uh, uh, whether it's a, a saying in the lo in his local area in northeast Thailand. And um, so uh, and so they said, oh yeah, yeah, that uh, yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, the people do say that. And uh, what it means is sometimes people people have a lot of titles or a lot of kind of show. Uh, they have um, there's thunder and there's no rain. It's like um, you know, I'm in charge here. I'm in charge. You know, kind of <laughs> that sort of uh, people who have a lot of authority or a high rank or they have uh, they're really full of themselves, but there's no rain. There's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing valuable. There's nothing really substantial. There's thunder, but there's no rain. So you know, sometimes people have got a lot of titles, but they they don't really have much um, to offer spiritually. And um, well, sometimes there's rain and there's no thunder. Sometimes people have got a lot. Uh, they are really wonderful people, and they're very um, say yeah, helpful and wise and uh, and kind and uh, and bring a lot of good things into the world. But there's no thunder. They don't. They're not recognised. They sort of. Yeah. As they say also in Thailand, they, they gild the back of the Buddha, Bittong Long Prat, Lang Prat, and they, they put the gold on the back of the Buddha. They, sort of, they, they, keep, they keep quiet. And so that uh, this, uh, uh, that made a little bit more sense 
when uh, he said, that, "Okay, you want you want to give me a title," <laughs> um, and uh, so it it, re- it relates to that that area a little bit more specifically that um, there is uh, in, in terms of uh, of what you are. So he's saying that it's more important to have rain than thunder. It's more important that what is the uh, uh, essential qualities of, of uh, what you embody and, and uh, how you are, who you are, than what it looks like from the outside. But uh, anyway, but I didn't realize that when we put it in this book, and I thought it was just an extremely esoteric <laughs> way of. Um, it was. A, it's almost like a, 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 um, a kind of deliberately mystifying statement. So. Yes, and in terms of being a biography, but then so later on, I found out that okay, ah, there is a meaning to it. It's not just a sort of a, a kind of um, uh, a mystifying statement. If someone says, "Okay, please write your biography," you make you say like, "Sometimes there's rain and no thunder. Sometimes sometimes there's thunder and there's no rain." It's like, so that's your biography. But then, uh, so I, I thought originally, I thought, well, it's just this kind of marvelously weird thing to say um, that he's not going to give a biography. He's like, you know, that, uh, <clears throat> when people asked him how old he was or where he lived, he says, "I don't live anywhere, and I wasn't born. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a birthday, and I don't live anywhere." <laughs> so I thought it was along those lines. But then, when I asked about the sort of local expressions, it's, it's, it's more to do with people who are full of themselves and people who are um, uh, who really have a, a, a value in life. That's uh, my current understanding. So any questions, thoughts on, on all of that? Um, yes. Guess you could, yeah. But uh, I mean, if, but then that 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 would in, in a way be saying that uh, Dhamma is the essence, which you could say, okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> but it's um, it's like if a thing has an essence, it's like so, and it's like that my understanding of the use of the words is that if there was a uh, that essence that made it that thing, that there was that essential yvyenya. That was absolutely and totally just that, and not and not other things. It sort of defined that thing as separate from from other things. That's what uh, how I understand that they're using the word essence. Uh, so it's like what defines this little pocket of thingness. So uh, if you if you translate dhamma, you know, dhamma as essence, then you say, yeah, everything is dhamma. That that works. But that uh, I don't think it's what's really meant in the. I mean, it takes a lot of reading through. I mean, I, mean, I did find it helpful having the because we had the the poetic and more understandable version of, of the translation first, and then the publishers wouldn't let me use it. So the uh, then this one came after, so that I had that one to inform this. But it is worth it is worth looking at, and uh, it's a it's a yeah. Uh, it is a, a helpful teaching, but all the, these things—it's good to re- reflect in terms of the environment of meditation, and to say just to explore that, like essence. What, what is what does essence mean? And use your own language, like your Russian or your own dialect. Or, uh, what does that mean? 
How does that? How does that sit in the heart? How, what's the, the felt experience of that? So you, these, the, the you, you're taking the terms and mapping them onto your own experience. Then get more of it. So then there's a more real sense of meaning. But sometimes it, with a, when you do that, I found that there's certain words that you just get. I don't know. What does it mean? And then that, that's helpful. Yeah, I don't really have a sense of what that's pointing to. Huh. And just, just leave it undefined until things get more clear. Joanna, yes. It's more of a reflection, actually. Um, I, thought, <laughs> I thought when you just said about what Ajahn Chah wrote back, I thought you were going to say that it was kind of irrelevant to ask him what he was, what all of his accomplishments were. Haven't people noticed that when you sit in the forest, that sometimes there's thunder without rain, and sometimes there's rain without thunder? They, it, it could be. I mean, I'm just second guessing. But uh, the, uh, I think it, it was also he's sending. Definitely, he was sending a message to the authorities, people who hand out the titles. It was, um, but uh, yeah, that, it could have been a part of it. I just thought it was a really beautiful there mind is just completely still, everything's kind of irrelevant, apart from just the moment. Mm-hmm. And then the only thing that would be relevant is that there's rain when there's thunder, not thunder, no rain. I don't know, I thought it was really lovely. There, there are many ways you can read it, but, uh, but uh, when, uh, and uh, I, I thought it was deliberately sort of Open to interpretation, but then I uh, then I found out there is a, there is a local saying that has that particular meaning. 